words have ever been spoken or sung. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. We are so thankful for those words, but even more for that truth um, and how it's touched us. If you have your Bibles today, I trust you do. If you can open with me to the book of Amos. The book of Amos, if you don't know what it is, there is no shame in opening up your table of contents and finding a page number. But uh, go ahead and join me there and welcome to week three of a series that we are calling Come Back to Me. It's a series where we are walking through the 12 minor prophets. And remember, they're only minor because they're shorter, not because they're insignificant. And as we walk through one book each week, what we are not doing is trying to unpack every truth in each book. For we would be here a long time in doing so. What we are really trying to do is um, just see how the main truths, some of the main truths that rise to the surface um, in each and every book. And a question that hovers over the book that we come to today is this. Does God really care? Does God care about evil and suffering and injustices in the world? Does God care about poverty and malnourishment that so many are experiencing even at this time? Does God care about every detail of our lives? And of course, the easy answer to that is yes. Um, the harder answer is explaining how God's care invades every part of our lives. Um, so then the real question becomes, do we really want God to care about every detail of our lives? Do we really want Him to care about it? For, for God's caring about every detail does not always swing in our favor. And what I mean by that is this. We want God to care when, when our rights have been violated, but we don't want God to care as much when we are the violators. Um, we want God to intervene when laws are broken that affect us, but, of course, we don't want God to do anything when we are the breakers of the law. And I know none of y'all in here have broken a law this week, whether it be through driving um, or anything like that, but just for the other people that that might apply to. Or we definitely don't want God to care when we continually break his law. And, and we might not um, want all of that, but the answer that we know to be true is that God indeed cares. He cares about every single detail. He cares about everything that we do. And as we're about to see um, in the book of Amos, his care and his response sometimes looks more like a lion than a lamb. I mean, here's what I know. If I walk around the corner and I see a lamb, I'm going to go, oh, cute little lamb, and I'm going to keep walking. If I turn the corner and there's a lion there, I'm going to go, hang on a second. What's a lion doing around the corner? I'm not going to feel very good about it at all. I mean, I think about like a, a mother hen that draws um, the chicks underneath their wings. And I think about a lion that scatters things. I, I saw a picture this week and all the talk about animals reminded me of um, having Malachi home for one month. We had the great idea to take him to the zoo. And so we took him to the zoo, and um, he was at the stage where he had to have something in his hand. And on this particular day, unbeknownst to me, he had grabbed a pumpkin spice wax cube on the way out of the house. And um, so we go into the zoo, and we go up on um, the platform. We're looking at the, the giraffes, and I'm holding him. Um, and you can see a picture right there to your left. I'm holding him, and you can't see, but in his hand he has the cube. And all of a sudden I saw him do this. 
and I saw something fly by, and I was like, what, it, what just happened? Um, and so I looked at Miss, and I said, I think he just threw something. I think he just threw something. And I turned around, and the zoo worker was right in my face. And she said, what did he throw? And I said, ma'am, I have no idea. I don't know. I have no idea. I was just trying to find that out. And then Misty said, oh, don't worry. It was a wax cube, but it's pumpkin spice. So it'll taste good. Well, she didn't think that was very funny. Um, so to make a long story short, our um, four-year-old or uh, four-year-old son at the time um, managed to completely shut down the giraffe exhibit as they had to go and remove all the giraffes um, and there is his little innocent face afterwards like what did I really do is it really that bad and all I could think of is kind of where we're heading today is I'm so thankful he threw it in the giraffe exhibit and not in the lion exhibit because you know on a good day I can run away from a giraffe you know they're tall um, probably uncoordinated I don't like my chances even on the best of days, um, with a lion. So there's our zoo story. Um, there is the little boy that single-handedly shut down the giraffe exhibit. There, there he is. Um, we, I don't think we've been back to the zoo since, just in case his picture might be up um, as we walk in. So there you go. But just think about this. Think about this picture, where we're about to come in the Word of God. Just think about God as a lion. And then think about this question. Is it smart... Or is, even is it possible to ignore a roaring lion? I would say, number one, it's not possible to ignore a roaring lion. But second of all, it's not smart to ignore a roaring lion. Michael Horton, in one of his books, said this, Nobody today seems to think that God is dangerous. And that itself is a very dangerous oversight on our part. It's dangerous because we yawn, oftentimes we yawn at God. Um, and in order for us to yawn at God, we have to replace the lion um, of God with a domesticated kitten. So God becomes this kitten that we can tame, that we can pet, that we can come near. And I know many people turn up their nose at the God who roars or the God who threatens or the God who, who judges. But understand this, God is not a kitten. God is a lion. He is good, but he cannot be tamed. We cannot tame him in any way, and we'll unpack that more in a moment. But let me just first kind of give a little background to the book of Amos that we are about to um, immerse ourselves in. And just a couple of quick notes about this book. First, um, Amos is unusual among all the prophets in that he was not a prophet by trade like all the other guys. Um, in Amos 1 and Amos 7, we are told that he was a cattle farmer and that he tended a field of sycamore trees. So um, unlike other prophets, this is not what Amos did for a living. Um, Amos was a man um, who was under a burden of a vision and a word from God. In fact, Amos's name means burden bearer. So he was under a burden, under a vision, under a word um, that he just could not keep to himself and he had to speak it out. Secondly, um, I think in unpacking this book, um, most of our reference points concerning the name Amos um, would um, probably be in the name famous Amos. And depending on how old you are or where you're from, you're either thinking of a restaurant or you're thinking of a delicious bag of cookies. Um, so one or the, the other is maybe what you're thinking. But unlike those things, this Amos was not a famous Amos. In fact, he was um, the most unpopular of all the prophets um, in Israel's history. So he was unpopular, number one, because he was an outsider. He was from the southern tribe, speaking to the northern tribe. 
Kind of, in your mind, envision um, a Republican or a Democrat going to the other party going, I have a message for you. Um, think about how that's going to go over um, and insert kind of same picture here. A guy from the southern kingdom giving a message to the northern kingdom, but also it was a message during a time where the northern kingdom, were they were doing just great. They were prospering in every way. So Amos shows up warning them that financial difficulty is coming. Military destruction is going to happen. They are going to um, be defeated and conquered by the Assyrians. And the people of Israel are like, you're crazy. You're crazy. We're the greatest nation there is. Nothing can harm us. And so while most of the prophets kind of intersperse these pictures of restoration with um, redemption and repentance, uh, Amos just drills down hard. In fact, there are only five verses in this whole book that give Israel hope. And the only hope they have is God's going to destroy you, but he's going to keep a remnant. And that's the only hope that we have. So some of you are thinking, I came on the wrong week. <laughs> no hope whatsoever. I can promise you there is hope and we will find it. But prior to that, what God is doing is God's word is God is giving a word to, to his people, to a people that he rescued, that he put his name upon. And he's doing it because God, regardless of what we think, God does not ignore. God does not ignore our lives. God does not ignore the actions of his people. And so we have to understand God cares. I love the words of James Montgomery Boyce who says this. The book of Amos is one of the most readable, relevant, and moving portions of the Word of God. But in much of church history, until very recent times, little or no attention has been paid to it. Why? It is because the book speaks powerfully against social injustices and religious formalism. And many who would otherwise read the book have been implicated in such sins and are being condemned by it. So one of the reasons we stay away from the book of Amos is because it hits us hard. So let us jump into this book this morning humbly and maybe even fearfully as we approach the roaring of the lion who is God. So I'm going to ask you, if you're able, if you can stand with me as we honor God's word. We're going to skip over and just read a few passages while I have you up. We're going to, do, um, we're going to read in a couple verses in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. So um, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says this. The word of Amos, who was among shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Now look at chapter 2. So chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 6 through 13 of chapter 2. And it says this, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They, they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above his roots beneath. 
Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. And then look at chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, and it says this, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Let's pray. Fathers, we come to your word today. We want to do so humbly, understanding that we are approaching you, God, the, the one who roars, the one who has all power and all authority and all knowledge concerning every detail of our lives. We can hide nothing from you. It is all bare before you. And we are so thankful, God, that you are a God of justice. You are a God who will always do what is right, but we also so thankful that you are a God who is full of mercy and grace and compassion for us. Lord, we thank you as we just heard the choir sing that you were there all along. God, that you're there. Lord, you're there. You're, you're holding out your hand. You're calling us back as you were calling the people of Israel back to you. Today we pray that we would hear your voice, respond to you by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. And so as you're seated, I want to think about this. Have you ever met a Justa? And what I mean by that is, um, or have you ever felt like a Justa? Meaning, I'm just a salesman. I'm just a manager. I'm just a stay-at-home mom. I'm just a this. I'm just a, a that. Or the job that I have that helps me provide for my family is just a job. You know, just uh, in, implies that what we do is fairly insignificant or is not important at all in the grand scheme of things. And I think we need to, I think we always need to be reminded that our occupation is what we do. It is not who we are. So our occupation is what we do. It's not who we are. But maybe, just maybe, there are those in here that are having a hard time with finding purpose in what you do. So maybe what you do, you're finding a hard time with purpose there. And let me just encourage you. When you add the word Christian in front of whatever it is that you do, you now have a much greater purpose. So whatever it is that is that you do, regardless of whether you think there's significance there or not, you add Christian before that, I'm a Christian this or that, all of a sudden your purpose changes. Because it no longer becomes about you, it becomes about the God in you and what God desires to do in you and through you for his glory and for your good. So let me just transition this way. By most standards, Amos would be considered justa. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a priest. He was just a shepherd. He was just a farmer. Who would listen to him? Yet instead of making excuses, saying, God, I'm just this or I'm just that, Amos obeyed and brought a powerful word to the people of Israel. I think it's important here for us to remember that some of the greatest contributions in church history have come through ordinary people just like Amos. I mean, think about 
William Wilberforce and the abolition of the slave trade, William Booth, who was a layperson but the founder of the Salvation Army, who did more to mobilize the church to meet the needs of the poor than anyone in history. Or think about um, just an ordinary individual named Lottie Moon who gave up a life of privilege to move to China for 39 years to give her life for the sake of the gospel there. And of course, we know that her namesake is on our Southern Baptist International Missions offering every Christmas season. But ordinary people, and I say this because one of my deepest prayers for our church today is that God would use us, ordinary people, to accomplish extraordinary things. That God would use us, ordinary people, to accomplish in us and through us extraordinary things. So what I want us to do now is I want us to turn our attention to the God who roars through the ordinary Amos of the day. And we're going to unpack very quickly four truths, four um, unmistakable um, declarations of the lion who roars in the book of Amos. So the first is this. The first truth is the lion roars declaring the sovereignty of God. So the lion roars, and in doing so, he's declaring the sovereignty of God. I think about the words of A.W. Pink, who um, defined the sovereignty of God this way. The sovereignty of God may be defined as the exercise of his supremacy. Being infinitely elevated above the highest creature, he is the most high, Lord of heaven and earth, subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. I love this. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. None can thwart him, none can hinder him, none can stop him. Yet because God is infinitely wise, he cannot err. And because he is infinitely righteous, he will do no wrong. Here then is the preciousness of this truth. So from the very beginning, God shows Amos and all who will hear him who he is. He is a lion who roars against the sins of people. He is the divine judge whose judgment cannot be overturned. He is the creator who sits above the vaulted sky. I mean, look at verse 2 of chapter 1. It begins, um, in this way, the Lord roars. Then in chapter 3, verse 8, as we just read, the lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Or look at chapter 4, verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 13, it, and speaking about the sovereignty of God. For behold, he who forms the mountains, creates the wind, declares to man what is his thought. Who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Here's what I know. Most professing believers, and I'll do this. Most professing believers don't have a hard time with the idea of God as creator or God as sustainer. But they do sometimes struggle to think of God as a roaring lion. We like to view God as a genie, a force, um, an old grandfather who is lenient towards us, or more biblically, we view God as our father, our friend, our creator, our sustainer, our savior. And most of those, especially the latter, are valid concepts or true things of God, but they shouldn't be our only pictures of God. God is also a lion who roars, demanding our attention. We can't ignore him. We only ignore him at our own peril. 
So think about this. God is sovereign over all of his creation. God is sovereign. He is um, on his throne over all creation. And then God is sovereign over every form of salvation. So God is sovereign over creation and God is sovereign over every form of creation. You might think, Michael, what, why, did, why did you say form? What does that word mean? Well, let me show you what I mean. In chapter 2, verse 10 of Amos, in chapter 2, verse 10, says this. God speaking, also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness. So just think about it. In the New Testament, when a New Testament writer wanted to celebrate God's power, um, powerful deliverance of his people, in the New Testament, especially in the epistles, um, that writer would point back or look back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, showing the powerful way that God delivered. Yet in the Old Testament, when an Old Testament writer wanted to point back on God's saving power, his powerful deliverance, he would always point back to the Exodus, to the way that God delivered his people from slavery. So the, the point is that God is sovereign over every form of salvation, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament as well. So the truth here is that God is sovereign over creation. He's sovereign over salvation. He's sovereign over every judgment that he will ever um, give out. And the reason we know that is because at the end of chapter 4, verse 13, we are told again, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name he is the lord this is who he is he is sovereign in all that he does so the lion roars declaring the sovereignty of god and then secondly the second truth the lion roars declaring the sinfulness of man so the lion lion roars declaring the sinfulness of man and this is the issue for israel and this is the issue for us we have sinned against a holy god now let me just say this, the first 20 verses of Amos would have had the people of Israel shouting amen and clapping. For the first 20 verses, Amos attacks the six surrounding nations um, that surrounded Israel saying, you have sinned, you have sinned, you have sinned, you have sinned. And Israel would have been going, amen, preach brother, you do it, you tell them how they've sinned. And then something happens. Um, Amos stops and says, now let's talk about you. And think about this. The truth is that most of the time, for most of us, most of the time, we don't mind other people's sins being exposed. So most of the time, we don't mind if somebody else's sin is exposed. We might even welcome it. We do mind, however, when we become the targets. And all of a sudden, um, our sin begins to get exposed. And this is what happens here to Israel. The first 20 verses, it was everybody else, and Israel was okay with it. And then it became about them. And the difference between the pagan nations and between Israel was that they willfully neglected the purpose that God had given them. God gave them a purpose so that all the other nations would know that they served the true God of the universe. And yet they were neglecting that which God placed before, before them. Just listen to the description here. In verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2 that we just read, Thus says the Lord, they sell the righteous for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and then turn aside the way of the afflicted. He even says this, but you command the prophets, you shall not prophesy. So ultimately, God was accusing Israel of not just shutting up the prophets, 
They weren't just shutting up the prophets. They were literally exploiting the poor. They weren't just apathetic towards the needy. They actually exploited the needy. They used them up, and then they turned away from them. Now, as I was thinking about this, I don't want to drill down too deep here, but I, I think there's times where I've seen churches do this. They use poor people to their advantage, and then once they've got what they wanted out of them, they move on. Like, how can we serve the poor so that we can get the credit for it, and then once we get the credit, we'll move on to somebody else? And sometimes that's how churches move from this to that to something else, all the while saying, we want the credit. I'll never forget sitting down with a pastor a few years ago who told me this, if we can't get the credit for it, we don't do it. And I said, that's pretty funny because if we can get the credit for it, I try not to do it. <laughs> because I don't want us to do things that only we can get the credit for. I want us to do things that only God can get the credit for. So this is the, the picture here. But think about this. The people of Israel have exploited the poor. An important thing here is that God calls this a breach of justice. Look at chapter 5 and verse 7. So chapter 5 and verse 7, it says this. O you who turn justice to wormwood, meaning that you turn what should be sweet into something that is bitter. And I know there are so many layers here that we don't have time to unpack, so I, I get that. But just consider the way that we see it versus the way that God sees it. If we refuse to help the needy, oftentimes we say, well, maybe I'm just apathetic, maybe I'm stingy, or maybe I just refuse to enable somebody to do what they're doing. But according to Amos, God sees it as injustice. The word justice occurs some 200 times in the Old Testament, and just about every time it is in reference to one of four classes of people, widows, orphans, foreigners, or the poor, who one scholar calls the quartet of the vulnerable. Timothy Keller, in his book, Gener Generous Justice, said this, From ancient times, the God of the Bible stood out from the gods of all the other religions as a God who was on the side of the powerless and of justice for the poor. So the just person, according to the word of God, is one involved in helping these four groups. Another scholar, R.C. Sproul, said this, In the Old Testament, justice is not just putting down the oppressor, it's also helping to lift up the oppressed. So it's not just putting down the oppressor, it's helping to lift up the oppressed. And I know what you're thinking, I know what I think. I don't always think of myself as, as rich, and probably you don't either. And then we begin to realize that we live in a world where over 50% of the people in our world live on less than $2 a day. And then if we have in this room, if we have running water, shelter over our heads, clothes to wear, food to eat, some form of transportation, then we are in the top 15% of the world's wealthiest people. Let that sink in for just a second. And you might say, well, you don't know what I'm going through, and you don't know this, and you don't know that. And um, I, Yeah, I don't. I, I don't, but we have wealth here. We have opportunities here. And with our wealth comes a choice. We can either care about the things that man cares about, or we can care about the things that God cares about. And if we care about the things that we care about, that man cares about, let me tell you what it leads to. 
It leads to us caring from our heart. And the Bible says in Jeremiah 17, our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Meaning we might care about people, but we only will care about what they can do for us if we do for them. Or we can have the heart of God that is passionately broken for the needs of the world. Oh, that we would have that heart. Oh, we would have that desire. And then listen, Amos continues on. Look at chapter 5, verses 21 through 23. Chapter 5, verses 21 through 23. Um, God exposes now not just their um, exploiting the poor, but he exposes now their worship. It says this in verse 21, I hate, I despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Listen, God says, take away from me your songs. A.W. Tozer said, most Christians don't speak lies to God, we sing them. We, we sing lies to God. Um, when, and, and on Sunday, we sing things that we don't mean. Let me just say this. God used Amos to indict his people on three different things. They were, first of all, they were eagerly anticipating future salvation while living and loving sin. Then they were indulging in worship while ignoring um, injustice. And then they were carrying on their religious activities all the while refusing to repent before God. And so most infuriating to God was the fact that they not only committed injustices, but they kept coming to church. They kept doing their worship experience. They kept leaving the same way they walked in, doing the same exact thing. Think about this. They were coming to church. They'd worship God, acting like nothing was wrong. A few years later, Isaiah would say of this same people, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They honor me with their lips, and their heart is far from me. Think about this. Coming to church, singing praises, listening to the word of God, while our hearts are a million miles from the one that we're hearing about and the one that we're singing about. For here is the true reality. What you believe most about God is not demonstrated by what takes place one hour here on Sunday. What you believe about God is demonstrated by how you live out in the world every day of your lives. That's what we truly believe. That is where the difference is made. And think about this. I know that, I know that choosing to drill down... Um, on sin will not make me popular in our culture. And shoot, it might not even make me popular here. But here's why I must do it. I must do it because if we want the presence of God, then we must take sin seriously. We have to take sin seriously. If, if we want just our version of God, then we can do whatever we want to living in sin. But no, if we want Him, we have to take serious what He takes serious. So the lion roars, declaring the sinfulness of man. And then third, the lion roars, declaring the sentence against man. So the lion roars, declaring the sentence, the judgment against man. So one of the remarkable things about this, um, the, the prophecies of this non-prophet was that Amos was apparently the first person to predict that Israel would disappear into exile. So he's the first to, to predict that Israel would be gone, would be swept away by the Assyrians. 
Just listen to the way he writes concerning God's judgment in chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. And then verse 27, he says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. He goes on to say, Is not the day of the Lord gloom with no brightness in it? I will send you into exile, according to verse 27, beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Listen to what God says to the people. You guys are sitting around talking about you want the day of the Lord, and God says, no, you don't. No, you don't. You don't want my judgment because my judgment is coming for you, not for everybody else. And here's what we have to understand. Brothers and sisters, God will not overlook injustice on the part of his people simply because we're his people. He won't. God's covenant relationship makes justice and righteousness in our lives are all the more crucial because we are the ones who are supposed to be sending out to the lost and dying world the message of the gospel. Think about this. God is not going to overlook. Will God forgive us? Yes. Will God sometimes withhold um, the, the price that we have to pay for that? No. Sometimes God will let us suffer. Sometimes God will let us go through it. So what would God do with his people becomes the question. God had poured mercy and grace upon Israel over and over and over again, yet His kindness did not lead to their repentance. His kindness did not lead to their obedience. Though He sent five different prophets and a couple more, like Isaiah who came to both um, kingdoms, the Israelites, they knew God's judgment, but they did not fear the Lord. They knew, according to all the prophets, God's judgment was coming. They did not fear the Lord. In fact, another judgment that God would bring upon them. Look at chapter 8 and verses 11 and 12 and just let this sink in for just a second. Amos 8 verses 11 and 12. It says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from the north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Since they ignored God's word, God would take his word from them. Since they lived as if they wanted no part of God's word, God said, fine, then you will have none of it. And this is where... I cannot, it's difficult for me to express what a great privilege it is, first of all, for us to have God's word in our hands. We have his word in our hands. We can hold his word. There are um, literally thousands upon thousands of people who do not have the privilege that we have of holding God's word in our hands hands and then we have the privilege to read God's word we don't have somebody else somebody else has had to tell us what it's saying we can read God's word and then we can come together to hear God's word corporately may we continually um, hunger for God's word not just here but when we're away from here may God's famine never come upon us may God's famine never come upon his church here 
Think about that picture, brothers and sisters. The line is roaring. The sentence is coming. Judgment is coming. God's not going to overlook um, our sin just because we're his. And then the third truth is this. So the, the sovereignty of God, the sinfulness of man, the sentence against man, but then the fourth thing, the lion roars, declaring the only hope for man. The lion roars, declaring the only hope for man. And let me just end this way. God's wrath on Israel was not arbitrary and it was not just about paying them back. As we heard last week and we'll hear every single week. And God bringing judgment upon his people. God was not trying to pay them back. God was trying to bring them back. God was saying, come back to me. May this make you come to your senses so that you will come back to me. In fact, just listen to what the Lord desired for Israel and what he desires for us. Look at chapter 5. In chapter 5, verse 4, it says this, For thus says the Lord, and he says, Seek me and live. In verse 6, Seek the Lord and live. Seek good and not evil, that you may live, so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. Verses 14 and 15, Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate, and it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. What was God's desire? Seek me and live. Seek me so that you may live. There is no life apart from me, so seek me for it. So the question becomes, if God's judgment is certain, how can we who are sinful to the core escape it? And here is the amazing good news for all people. The day of the Lord which will ultimately be bad news for those who reject Christ, does not have to be bad news for anyone. The day of the Lord, which will be bad news to anyone who does not trust Christ, does not have to be bad news to anyone. For God's justice and mercy have been reconciled in one place and have been reconciled in one person. Jesus Christ on the cross. In Jesus, a holy God took on flesh. He lived a perfect life in order to offer himself as a sinless sacrifice for for us, on the cross, he took every bit of God's punishment, not that he deserved, but that we deserved. Then God raised him in victory from the grave, now inviting us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will be saved. We are here this morning declaring this. Jesus is still the only Savior for sinners in the world. He's still the only Savior for sinners in the world. So here's the final question for us today. I think, when I think about the book of Amos, I think about this. Ignoring God's word will not stop anything that God has declared that he will do. You can ignore God's word all you want to, and God's plans and purposes are still going to be fulfilled. The final question for us is this. When God's judgment roars... And it will absolutely roar. On what side of that roar will we be found? Will we be on the side that receives God's judgment because we did not come to God on his terms? Through Jesus Christ? Or will we be on the side that received, that knows, that declares his salvation? Oh, to God that we will be on the side that 
In fact, turn with me real quick to Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, we read about a different kind of roar. And I pray to God that we would be on this side of this roar. In fact, did you know that the only time the word um, hallelujah is used in the New Testament happens, or the first time it's used in the New Testament is Revelation 19? We would think there'd be a hallelujah when Jesus is born. We would think there'd be a hallelujah when Jesus rises from the dead, but we don't read it in the Word of God. It's not till we finally read of rejoicing in heaven that we read the word hallelujah in the New Testament. But look, look at this, verses 1 and 2. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice, some might, might say a loud roar, of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And look at verses 6 and 7. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Get this. Like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Oh, to God that we would be on that side of the roar. But let me tell you something. Don't wait for it then. Do it now. Don't wait to say hallelujah then. Say hallelujah now. Don't wait to give him glory then. Give him glory now. Give Him glory with your life now. Roar His praise now. Tell people now what He's done for you. They might look at you like you're crazy. There's a really good chance they might. But one day, one day, hopefully in this life, they'll wish they had what you had. And they'll long to know what you know. Oh, to God, let's roar his praises now. Let's give him hallelujahs now. Let's give him glory and honor and praise now, for he is worthy of it. Amen? Amen. Amen. If you can go ahead and stand with me, we're going to call the musicians forward. And let us pray together. Father, we come before you, and God, we, we do declare that you are everything your word declares you to be. Lord, you are loving you are merciful. You are gracious, God. And we declare that. But we also declare with the same amount of, of truth and faithfulness, Lord, that you are just. Lord, you are just. You are holy. Lord, you must punish sin. And you will punish sinners who refuse to come to you through your son, Jesus. Lord, you did it. You put it on display through Israel, Lord, and you are putting it on display all throughout your world. And there is coming a day, God, where full judgment is going to come. God, we are so thankful. God, we're thankful. We're thankful that therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, we're thankful that you have taken away our condemnation through your Son. But Lord, we remember and we acknowledge that we live in a world that is still under condemnation. God, help us, Lord. Oh, God, give us compassion. Give us your grace. Give us your power to make known the gospel to them. God, help us to be a people who open our mouth and declare your hallelujahs. Lord, also help us to be a people that Lord, we don't overlook our own sin. God, that we don't overlook if we're exploiting 
the poor and being unjust, God, forgive us. If we're coming in this place of worship and just worshiping and going through the motions while our hearts are far from you, forgive us. Oh God, that you would set us right before you. Lord, we thank you that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do that across this room today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.